Now, the most important thing at the very beginning is to say that there is a blue bucket of cooking apples outside where the refreshments are and some polythene bags, and I invite you to help yourselves. Now, this morning, we are continuing our series in exploring the Old Testament book of Exodus, and we're in uh, section 5 now, and that focuses on chapters 16 and 17, the first part of chapter 17, and it's all about manna. It's all about food. And uh, we've been reminded of Cadbury's cream eggs already, and the, uh, the wedding feast of the lamb in eternity. We've broken bread together. Um, but this is about something that actually happened, but has a profound inner meaning for us who are Christians. The bottom line, of course, is that no matter how much bread or food we desire and consume, the essential bread that we need is the Lord Jesus Christ, who shockingly said, you cannot be a follower of mine unless you eat my body and drink my blood. This is in John chapter 6. And as a result, many of his disciples left him because they said, this is a hard understanding. We don't know what you're talking about. Are you inviting us to be cannibals? And Jesus, of course, was doing nothing of the kind. But uh, my understanding of it is that he was inviting us to be so preoccupied with Jesus, to, in that sense, have consumed him into every part of our lives, our daily existence, that it's all Jesus. It's all G Jesus. And uh, people who meet us encounter Jesus in us. Whether we're speaking or whether we're silent, whatever we're do doing, people encounter Jesus in us. And that's, if you go to sleep now for the rest of the morning, that is the most important thing for you to ta take away. That Jesus invites us to consume him so that he fills us through and through. You got that? That's good. That's good. Now let's change the subject, it seems, quite drastically. Um, who's grumbled and complained this morning? There's an honest woman over there. Oh, another one here. Right, okay. The rest of us are probably being quite dishonest uh, because by nature we grumble and complain. We're like the Israelites. We're going to encounter a lot of grumbling in the desert. Okay, so some of us, hopefully all of us admit to grumbling and complaining and moaning and finding fault. And you think, gosh, as a Christian, am I really like that? And the answer is yes, because we are still in a process of being sanctified and the process isn't finished. Anyone been angry in the last few days? Really angry? Yes, a few hands go up. That's good. Okay. Um, wonder what things make you angry. I don't want hands up and voices out. But um, apparently, as far as road rage is concerned, 
And of course, none of us suffer from, from that. The worst place is Glasgow. Drivers in Glasgow have the worst level of road rage in the UK. The least amount of road rage, it did surprise me, I thought it would be Leafy Suburbia in Surrey or somewhere like that, but actually it's Liverpool. Incredible, Liverpool. Who's experienced road rage in the last 24 hours? Okay, some. Gosh, this is, this is appalling. <coughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, okay, there's another sort of rage as well in, um, out on the streets, and that's pavement rage. Pavement rage. And the things that make us angry on the street to the point of wanting to bash somebody is people who are walking more slowly in front of us than we are. <laughs> And just as we're going to overtake them, they wander off in front of us, and then we go the other way, and they wander off in front of us. People who stop abruptly or turn suddenly, slow crowds, chuggers. You all know what chuggers are, don't you? They're the charity workers that our high street seems to be filled with. People texting, who of course walk into you or stop suddenly. Groups of youths. Not quite sure what the groups of youths are doing, but they give us pavement rage, apparently. Street salespeople, people smoking, people with prams and buggies, and apparently kids. Kids give us pavement rage. Isn't that amazing? Kids give us pavement rage. So... Some of us will admit to grumbling and, and complaining. Some of us will admit to being angry and ranting. Are there times when you become overwhelmed with anxiety? Has anyone been crippled with anxiety in the last week? You're so honest. This is wonderful. You're so, so honest. Okay. And finally... When you get in uptight situations, when life seems to be going against you, when uh, life lets you down, where do you hide? Where do you go for your comfort? Is it comfort eating? Or comfort drinking? or comfort TV binging, or you get lost on your tablet, or you take tablets. Because we all have these coping mechanisms, and life is not perfect. Life does not run smoothly, and somehow, in the midst of it all, God has to be the answer to all these things. God and his ways, God and, and his word have to be the answer to all these things. Well, let's just start, summarize the, um, the story so, so far, the book of Exodus. We're focusing on the experience of the Israelites who were for 400 odd years slaves to the pharaohs. Well, Egypt is now behind them. Slavery is behind them. 
But do they still carry that Egyptian experience in their hearts? Do they still see themselves as slaves, perhaps no longer to the Egyptians, but to what they carry in their hearts? And what this part of the story is about is our hearts. God makes it clear in Exodus chapter 16 that it's his people's hearts, rather than their appetite for food, uh, their hearts. What, what's going on in here? Because you and I can do the right things, but our inner motives are wrong. We can have a smile on our faces, but actually it's all churning away inside. And we can say things that impress people, but we know in our hearts that something's wrong. And it's our hearts that are the real battlefield in our spiritual life. Now if we turn all that over, we can see that the recent experience of the Israelites has been an amazing sequence of miracle and provision. In that sense, they, they've got nothing to moan about because God, over a period of time, comes to their rescue. And what has God done in the earlier chapters in Exodus? He's brought the plagues on Egypt and has made a clear distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. We've got the awesome event of the Passover. And if you sheltered behind the blood on the doorframe of your home, then the angel of death passed over you. Before they left, the Israelites knocked on their neighbors' doors and said, we're going, can we have your stuff, please? And uh, so we had the miraculous provision of gems and fabric and animal skins, which, of course, were used later in the construction of the tabernacle and the high priest's garments at Mount Sinai. Crossing the Red Sea and the destruction of the pursuing Egyptian chariot army. The bitter water at Marah, which was made sweet by Moses throwing a tree into it. That's a miracle. And then as chapter 15 ends, we've got the luxury of the oasis at Elim. And then as chapter 16 begins, we've got the journey into the desert proper, into the furnace, if you like, where they're going to be tested. Some years ago, uh, it was probably about eight or nine years ago, Radio 4 carried a, an interesting little pro program, and it was all about six-word memoirs, your life story in six words. And it was based on an incident in the life of Ernest Hemingway, who was once bet 10 American dollars that he couldn't write a story in six words. And he came up with, for sale, baby shoes never worn. And that's an awesome story in six words. And there were contributors from mainly America as well as the UK, uh, and they told their life stories in six words. And so Maureen and I sat, 
sat down and wrote our life story in six words. And it's this. Not exactly as we had planned. Not exactly as we had planned. And I think we could all buy into that, that our lives have not taken the pathway that we thought they would. And we've trusted God for a particular solution to something and he's taken us on a totally different pathway. And the key thing to remember is that while we don't know what's going on, God does. And while we can say it's not exactly as we had planned, we need to accept that God has a superior plan for our lives. One of the things that happens uh, when things don't go according to our plans is that we lose our sense of purpose and direction and we have to find it again. And so we often have those wilderness experiences where we're trying to find God's will for our lives. Is that true for you? Have you, you had those wilderness experiences where you think, God, it hasn't panned out as I thought it would. What on earth are you doing? What should I do? I'm at my wit's end. I thought I was going here, but actually there's a closed door now. And sometimes we have to grapple not only with the, um, the question of mystery, but we have to grapple with the the issue of rejection and disappointment. And uh, it can be very challenging to our faith. Very challenging to, to, to our faith. And so the constant reminder to the Israelites as they enter into the wilderness and journey through it is that they should seek after him. They should constantly seek after him. And not exactly as we had planned, of course, could be the thought in the minds of the Israelites as the euphoria of escape becomes the bitter experience of enduring the desert. Now, I'm assuming that you've got a Bible in front of you somewhere. Uh, you know where Exodus is because we've been looking at it for a few weeks now. And uh, if you go to chapter 16 of Exodus... Starting at verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Now, that's just a name. It, it's not where you, where you sin, but it could easily be. Um, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So they've been free now for a month and a half. God has provided miraculously for them during that month and a half. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what's the next word? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
That's quite a, a, an accusation to face up to, isn't it? Um, what they are saying is, we're so hungry that we've actually forgotten what the harshness of Egyptian slavery was like, and we're focused on lamb casserole and a side dish of vegetables so much that we're prepared to go back to Egypt. Do you find sometimes that the world is a very attractive place? Do you find that the way the world behaves can be very enticing? And are you tempted to abandon the Christian pathway and get absorbed in the world again. Do, do you have those sort of temptations? Or are you impervious to them? Do you sometimes find that you have to fight harder to maintain your Christian identity? Do you find sometimes that the world is clamoring for your attention to the point that it blocks out everything that God wants to say to you? Perhaps you've learnt those le lessons over the years but certainly lots of younger people find themselves in this struggle in this wrestling match with the world and with the flesh and the devil now God of course is ever merciful and ever gracious and he promises bread from heaven and plenty of meat so chapter 16 verse 4 then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, so that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And so God provides every morning bread. It's a quite an unusual bread, <laughs> um, as we'll see in a moment. And every evening he provides quail, small birds, for meat. And God, in his mercy, makes all this available to them. Let's go to verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. If you just skip over to verse 31, it says, Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white 
and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And then back to where we were. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They didn't know what it was. And the word in Hebrew, manu, uh, means what is it? And that gives us the word manna. And I'm sure there's been lots of provision in your life which is different to what you were expecting and you said, God, what is it? What is going on in my life? What are you trying to tell me? What are you trying to show me? I thought it was an open door, but you've closed it. I thought I understood what, what your will was, but I seem to be confused. What is it? And even in the midst of our perplexity, God wants us to enjoy his provision and his presence. So this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an, an omer. Uh, that's about two litres. Um, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever ga gathered much had nothing left over, and who whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But being the complaining lot, of course, they decided to do their own thing. Did they trust God or not? Did they take God at his word or not? The answer clearly is no. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. And then, of course, again, to test their hearts, God reverses the rules. So on the sixth day, on the Friday, for, for the Israelites, he says, okay, gather twice as much as you normally do, because you're not going to be gathering any on Sunday. Sunday's a day of rest. I want you to enjoy a day, day off. No work, no gathering. And uh, they do. They gather twice as much, of course, and they keep it overnight. But it doesn't rot, and it doesn't stink, and it doesn't become full of worms. God can do anything. And he's testing their hearts all the time. My goodness. And, that's not your signal. <laughs> and, um, of course, do they stay in their beds and their tents? No. They go out and try and gather stuff. But there's no nothing there. And what we find, of course, is that once we're into chapter 17, when, we, we won't look, look at this particularly, but... Once we're into chapter 17 with the, um, the need for, for water and Moses is told by God to go, go and smash a rock face with his staff, he gives this place a name. He calls it Meribah, which means quarreling, complaining, moaning. And he also gives it another name, which is Massa which means testing. And in chapter 17, 
the writer makes it very clear that two types of test are going on. The people are testing God because they're challenging him by not believing his word. But underlying that, of course, God is testing them. He's testing their hearts. He's testing uh, what is really going on in their spirits. I don't know if you're familiar with a wonderful Irish preacher uh, called Alec Mattia. Um, he died a m month ago in his 90s. But he's, he was a prolific commentator on the Bible, particularly the Old T Testament. And in his book, The Message of Exodus, he sa says this. When God tests us, he does so by bringing us into situations which call for trust and the endurance and obedience that proves our trust is real. So that by the exercise of faith in the face of new challenges, our trust in him can develop and mature until we come to see that everything that happens to us is under divine supervision and is brimful of divine purposes for good. Now I love that because it tells us two things. The first thing it tells us is that God knows what he's doing. Even though we can't see the end from the beginning, God does. But the second thing it tells us is that God follows his own timetable. And you and I have experienced those bewildering times when things haven't happened on cue. They haven't happened according to our timetable. God hasn't done things the way we wanted them to happen. Because God has something better. God always has something better. And when God provides, when God makes provision for the needs in our lives, he's doing that in a sense as a secondary thing because he is really wanting us to love him for who he is more than what he does. Now, being the God he is, of course, he cannot help but be and do at the same time. But if we love God simply for what he does, what he provides, we have a name for that. We call it cupboard love. And some of you have had children who are very good at expressing cupboard love. And some of you, when you were children, have probably expressed a lot of cupboard love. And some of us as adults are probably very good at that, where we simply get closer to somebody, say some nice things to, to them because of what we want from them, what we want them to do for us. But God wants us to draw near to him for his own sake, to fall in love with him afresh. We've already established the fact that we're very good at complaining, that there are things that make us angry, there are things that cause us anxiety, and we have a, a way of escaping from pressure. 
Do you remember in the Cain and Abel story in the book of Genesis, um, Cain and Abel were required to make a, a sacrifice to God. And Abel's was accepted and Cain's was rejected. And Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And in our daily experience, with the ordinary desires that we have, for food and drink and comfort and leisure um, and love and acceptance and sex and all the things that are God-given blessings in this life, you can just imagine that there is accompanying all of those desires the temptation to misuse them, the temptation to find our satisfaction in the wrong sort of way. So, for example, we have a natural desire for food and drink. But you could easily argue that the sin of gluttony, the sin of stuffing ourselves with food and drink, perhaps going the other way, anorexia, uh, all leading to, to poor health, alcoholism, that, 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 that sin crouching at the door. And so what God intends to be an ordinary blessing to us, like food, food and drink, can easily lead us astray. When we're bored, when we're under pressure, when we're feeling rejected or lo lonely, we can misuse these very normal things. The antidote, of course, is to express hospitality and share the food and drink with other people, to exercise self-control it's normal to desire to have a comfortable home but this can lead to one-upmanship you want to stay ahead of the Joneses you always want to be on trend you have a competitive spirit you look over the neighbor's fence think, oh I've got to have a bigger one than that um, and so the ordinary desire for, comf for a comfortable home can be led astray into sin the antidote for that is to open your home to other people, to be open-hearted and have an open door, and to learn the lesson of contentment with what you have. Another very natural desire, of course, is to have money in our pockets. But sometimes that leads to hoarding, becoming miserly, being mean-spirited or wasting it through reckless spending keeping it to ourselves. The antidote, of course, is by being generous and sharing it with others. And so we can go on through uh, all sorts of normal uh, desires that, that we have. The desire for love, the desire for sex, the desire for leisure and relaxation. They can all be expressed in a Christian way but there is sin crouching at the door that is leading us astray and we have to say no. There's a blessing on the man who endures 
in the face of temptation. There's a blessing on the woman who endures in the face of te temptation. And one of the key parts of the fruit of the Spirit is the, the fruit of self-control. Self-control means that we are so under the authority of the Spirit and the Word of God that we can say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. God in his wonderful mercy does provide the things we need. But in summary, that's your cue Marjorie, in summary anything can become an idol and a preoccupation and a snare and a cause of sin. And the desires that, that we have are normal, they're okay, as long as they're kept within biblical boundaries. It's when we are led astray by the world, the flesh and the devil, that we can be drawn into sin. And we live in the midst of that unholy trinity, the world, the flesh and the devil all enticing us in different ways to do something contrary to God's will. And you and I know that our adversary, the devil, is a past master of the subtle, beguiling, persuasive approach. And we have to learn what those default mechanisms are in our own lives. When you're under pressure, do you know what you're tempted to do that is wrong? Are you aware that there are lines, boundaries, which you could cross? And we have to recognize these default reactions in our own lives. But the only way to recognize these things in ourselves, because we're so good at making excuses for our wrong choices or our wrong priorities, the key to breaking free from them and to begin living in a new way, it can't be done without the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us. And the thing that the Holy Spirit loves to do is to keep introducing Jesus to us. Because as I said at the beginning, the bread, the food, the sustenance, the provision that we really need as the bottom line is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I haven't got time to look at it now, but if you read through John chapter 6, that tells you all about how Jesus wants to become our preoccupation. So integral to who we are, what we think, how we live, how we behave and react, the choices we make, the journeys we take, he wants to be integral to all those. Not that he's in a compartment outside or just in part of our lives, but actually he affects and determines each part of our lives. It's as though we had consumed him. It's as though we had eaten his flesh and drunk his blood. So that Jesus becomes your and my 
glorious preoccupation. The focus of my being and doing. My whole life. And in John chapter 6 and towards the end in verse 63, Jesus says this, The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. But the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. So as we walk through the wilderness of our own lives, as we have desires for usually legitimate things, let's make sure that we listen to the spirit, that we know the word of God, and that we have the Spirit's empowering to enable us to walk within those God-given boundaries. Because sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have us. But if you belong to Jesus today, then you have within you, through the Spirit, the ability to say no to sin and to live a victorious life. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we bless you 